um, I'm going to be teaching through all year on Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. Um, there were lesson outlines. Um, I think Paul may have had the lesson outlines. Um, they may be on the bench or the stool back there. Um, but you'll be able to follow along in the outline this morning if you have one and on the PowerPoint. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4 really centers on how do we walk worthy of our calling. Um, a lot of churches in the world, one of the appeals is you kind of get to go as if you're going to a concert or you go to a show. You know, it's pick your own degree of commitment, be as committed as you want to be. If you want to be anonymous and just show up at times when the church meets, well, you know, whatever. Um, but if we really know the Lord, we don't want to choose our degree of commitment. We want God to make that choice for us. We want to walk worthy of our calling. Um, when we, Eve and I were in Indiana uh, recently, um, there's a brother who is there who gave an invitation on a Wednesday night about how uh, worms can't see, they can't hear, they just feel vibrations of things, and so they don't, they don't understand what they're missing, right? They don't, they don't miss or even want to see like great views or sunsets. They don't want to travel to mountains or... You know, they just don't, they don't think about those things that are worms, right? Um, it's kind of interesting, David, in Psalm 22, refers to himself as a worm. Um, in Isaiah, uh, God refers to Israel as a worm in the midst of, like, promises. It's weird. It's like God's not talking down to Israel. He's just kind of strangely referring to them in a way that just seems um, almost, like, positive. And I think the idea is, in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, God is trying to open our eyes, right? To recognize there is so much we just we don't see. There's so much to understand. There's so much to learn to value. And the more that we see those things that God has done, the more we recognize more intimately the depth of his grace and wisdom and the purpose of our calling, the nature of our calling, how unified we are by God's work, the more committed we will strive to be to God's purpose in our lives. We'll want, through gratitude, to completely give ourselves to God's purpose. And that'll, that'll take different forms, obviously, for each person. But what we're doing is we're working through these lessons to see, well, how, how do we understand the way that we can commit ourselves to God in our place in that commitment? So we're going to look at chapter 4, 4 through 6, which talks about how God has fully defined the nature of our unity and really what underlines our unity. But before we look at that, I want to catch back up with verses 1 through 3. So this will be the New American Standard. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is not something accidental. God establishes unity not by accident. God sacrificed his son to bring us into unity with himself. And God works in very real, very present ways to preserve unity and, and bring us into unity. And so the call is that we, in the same way, we to walk worthy need to also be diligent to preserve the unity that God has established. And so I really want us to, as we look at these lessons, reflect on that. Are you walking worthy? Is the way that you're serving God do you see yourself within this exhortation? When he implores you to walk in a manner worthy, don't just think about that as some generic message that falls on the ears of a crowd, but think about yourself. Where do you stand in relation to that exhortation? And as we think about these things, 
This is a very famous passage with a lot of big ideas here. In verses 4 through 6, it said that there's one body, one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So, again, these are really big ideas. Um, We could probably have a whole year-long series on um, just these concepts here and defining these things. Um, But I really want to just look at the fact that it's vital that we let God define these things. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, people can see the body differently. People can define the body however they want. Uh, People can define the spirit in different ways. People can define our hope, and they do define hope in different ways. People see Jesus in all sorts of different ways. People see faith in different ways. People see baptism in different ways, and people see God in different ways. But God's word still stands. And the thing with God defining these things, you remember in the Exodus where Moses said, you know, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he was being charged to go back to the Israelites, Moses said, well, what am I going to say about who sent me? You know, what's, what's, what's your name? And God said, you tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am. And I think it's important to understand that God wasn't just giving himself a title to be referred to, but what God was really saying is, you let me define myself. That Israelites, I'm not like an idol. Israel's not going to get to define me on their own terms. Moses, you don't get to define me on your terms. You just watch. Watch me define myself. And so we have to have the humility to let God's definition stand. That if God has defined these things, which he has, we need to have the reverence and the caution to recognize that as there's so much confusion in the world because of the pride that doesn't just accept what God has said, we have to be extra careful to recognize the importance of letting God's definition stand. So the way that I'm going to handle this lesson, we're going to be looking semi-briefly at some of these things. Again, these are huge ideas, but I just want to touch on what I think are really vital aspects of these ones. And what I want to do is to look at scriptures that really tie some of these things together. So 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13, ties the idea of the body of Christ and the Spirit uh, together. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, um, I'm almost like tempted to apologize. You know, there's going to be scriptures that move a little bit more all over the place here. This is going to be less focused in just Ephesians. Um, So we'll be turning in our Bibles just a little bit, but I'll have the scriptures in the PowerPoint and you've got them in your handout as well. Um, But 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about unity. And as a part of the greater conversation of unity here, Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 says, For even as the body is one, and this is talking about the body of Christ, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So again, you have these two ones here identified together. And I think there is an importance in how they're identified together, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But I think one quick principle that is very important in the greater conversation, not just of 1 Corinthians 12, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 with the various ones. You know, what we have in common as a body of Christ spiritually is infinitely greater than whatever differences we may have in a worldly sense. And if you think about it, commonalities are always what tends to draw people together. 
um, commonalities and commonalities of like priority or interest or you know even like humor, background, um, commonality of experience, commonality of goal or ambition. All of those things tend to bring people together. And in the world, as people's priorities change, as their experiences change, oftentimes their relationships, their friendships change. But commonalities are really the foundation of good working relationships, right? And so we have to recognize, I think, the importance of the body is we have things in common. We've been, we've been joined together by God in very intimate and powerful ways. And the image of a body, I think, is very important because 1 Corinthians 12 will get into the fact that God has designed the body to be incredibly diverse. Different members have different functions, Different people look different. It'll even go on to say that it'll actually look like people have different values. And I mean like people seem to have, um, one person will seem to be more valuable than another, which is not right. And so there needs to be the self-denial of faith to recognize as we are in the body together, we actually all have the same value. And it'll go on to say as well that those who seem to have less honor value, we actually deliberately bestow even more honor on these so that there's no divisions that exist within the body. So what we have in common as a body is greater than our worldly differences. But we also have to recognize the intimacy of this concept because the body is the church. Ephesians chapter 1 defines that really explicitly, that Christ was given as head to the body, which is the church. This isn't talking at this point in Ephesians 4. Particularly, Paul in Ephesians 4 is not referring to a local body, as much as he's talking about the universal, singular body of believers, people who are connected to Jesus Christ, right? So another point about the body. In James chapter 2, verse 23, James makes the point that as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So can a body live without a spirit? John 6, verse 63, Jesus would say, it's the, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life and the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So the body can't even live or function or exist if there isn't a spirit giving it life. So a few things that I think are very important here about the one spirit. There's a lot of things about the working of the spirit, the identity of the spirit that are maybe harder to define, but I think here are three things that are at the source of our unified view of the work of the Spirit and who the Spirit is. One, the Spirit is our source of fellowship. So in 1 Corinthians 12, the verses we read, it's the Spirit who is um, the source of our fellowship together as a body. In John 6, verse 63, the Spirit is our source of life and the source of all life. So when we're baptized into Christ, it's the Spirit who joins us to Jesus to live with him and to live with God. Um, Just as Jesus said, it's the Spirit who gives life. Um, And truth is a part of life and fellowship. In Ephesians 1 verse 5, or I'm sorry, the text there is wrong. It's Ephesians 3 verse 5. Paul is talking about his apostleship and he mentions uh, that as you read, you can understand my, which is Paul speaking, not me. Um, Paul says you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He mentions that it was hidden from the foundation of the world but has now been revealed uh, through the holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So God has made a choice that truth would be revealed by the Spirit in written word. And it's vital that we understand our source of truth. Because some people, when I've studied with people or talked to people about God's word, 
Some of the most difficult conversations about the Bible and about authority or about God's will are oftentimes with people who believe the Spirit is directly communicating with them in their minds. Therefore, the Bible is not very vital. It's not really necessary to know God's will because the Spirit is communicating with them in some direct way. What's ironic, too, is usually those conversations are with people who are fundamentally not understanding basic Bible teaching. And so the Spirit is apparently teaching them things that directly contradict fundamental truths that we're even going to study. So we have to understand, in our unity, we have one source of truth. I'm not your source of truth. Nobody here is a source of truth. No leader, in any sense, is a source of truth. Jesus alone is our source of truth. The Spirit is our source of truth. God is our source of truth. And that expression of truth is written in Scripture. So, again, I know that's very brief, but just to touch on some things that I think are at least points of importance related to how God defines the spirit in the body. So, one Lord, one, uh, one hope, one Lord, and one faith. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Uh, Romans chapter 15. And this, is, again, is a passage where these three uh, ones are tied together in one place. And I think it helps give context for how these ones really work together. Romans chapter 15, and start in verse 8 and read through verse 13. And as we're reading, just think about how hope, Lord, and faith are connected together, especially as we read. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So conveniently, the, again, greater conversation is about unity here. Especially if you look back at verses 5 and 6, unity of, of one mind, uh, having one voice to glorify God. Um, the, the conversation is on unity, but particularly here in the verses that we read, the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together in Jesus Christ. So the principle I want to focus on to start this point is in verse 12. Uh, notice that our hope and our faith are based in Jesus. And I think there's some important principles within that. So he says, He who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles shall hope. Jesus demonstrates the truth and reliability of God's promises. Jesus shows that God is faithful to his word in a way where it is impossible for him to lie. When Jesus died, that was the point when mankind had done everything in, in mankind's power to eliminate God's faithfulness. Not only that, but every reason was given to God to give up on his promises. Every, every right or every part of the Jewish covenant uh, was violated in its greatest, greatest, most horrendous way when Jesus was crucified by the Jewish people. And yet God, through that, still remained true to his promises in raising Jesus from the dead. God is faithful. 
And Jesus raising from the dead proves indefinitely forever that God always keeps his promises. God's word is reliable and it is true. But Jesus is also the servant of God's promises. So if you look back in uh, verse 8, that Jesus is the servant of the circumcision on behalf of the promises that God had made to the Jewish people. But he also in verse 9 is the servant of the Gentile people to glorify God for his mercy. So not only does Jesus demonstrate that God's word is true, that his promises can be relied on, that God will always remain faithful to his promises, but Jesus himself is also the servant of those same promises. Uh, On Wednesday, not Wednesday, but Sunday afternoons, um, when I give lessons, I've been talking about Hebrews. And one of the primary points the Hebrew writer makes is that Jesus is more active in heaven serving as high priest than he ever even could be on earth in his physical ministry. It can be easy to think that when Jesus was living, that's when he was most active. Or Israel, when God was sending them direct prophets and performing direct miracles, that's when God was most active in the world. But that's not true. Again, it's like Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 and that concept of being like worms. There is so much that we don't see. And and Jesus came to open our eyes to understand how active and diligent and passionate God is in fulfilling the promises that he's made, especially those that are based in Christ. And all of this leads us to the one faith in Romans 4, verse 17. Turn, turn back there really quick, since that's in the same book that we're looking in right now. I love what's said in Romans 4, 17 about the nature of Abraham's faith. You know, the one faith, I think, is described here in Romans chapter 4. This is a passage that I think is generally very misunderstood, and like many passages in Scripture, Because it's so misunderstood in the world, it can be harder to, I think, appreciate the truth of what it's saying. Um, But if you look at uh, chapter 4 here, verse uh, 16, it mentions explicitly that those who are saved are those who share in the quality or those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There are really two simple components to Abraham's faith that I think lead us to have a perfect trust in God but also leads us to have a submissive and obedient faith to God as well. Verse 17, In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being which does not, that which does not exist. Jesus proved that God is capable of bringing life to the dead. That even when it looks like everything visibly contradicts God's promises, I'm too weak, I'm too inadequate, I don't have the understanding that I need, I don't have the experience that I need, none of that matters because God is able to bring life to the dead. What matters is that God has promised. Therefore, if you look at verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 21, Abraham was not assured that what God had promised Abraham could perform. He was fully assured that because of God's nature, based on his promise, he understood that God was capable of fulfilling his promises. Jesus leads us to the one faith. He's the beginning and the end of our faith. Back in chapter 15, um, something that I think is important with Jesus being the one Lord in verse 12. Notice the emphasis of verse 12 is that Jesus is the root of Jesse. Usually Jesus is um, related to uh, David um, as Jesus fulfills the type of what David really represented as a king. I think with being the root of David, there's an emphasis on where David came from, and I think it helps us to appreciate who Jesus is, the one Lord. 
How was David received when he was anointed? I mean, even think back when David was anointed by Samuel. Did Samuel anticipate that the youngest of Jesse's household would be anointed? Uh, Jesse didn't even bring David in to be considered, right? I mean, how could David, among all the brothers, be the one to be considered? And David um, was secretly anointed. Um, Samuel didn't go telling everybody about what he had done, and neither did David or his brothers. So from that point on, David's, David's position as king was resisted and denied, even for many years. Um, on the handout, I've got a list of people um, in point A under there. You've got Saul, who tried to stop David from reigning as king. Saul died, he self-destructed. Absalom tried to overthrow David. He died, he self-destructed. Sheba, at the end of 2 Samuel, when David returns from being persecuted by Absalom, Sheba then incites Israel again against David, and Sheba is beheaded and his head is thrown over a wall. He dies and self-destructs. Joab uh, despised judgments that David had made, and that caught up with him, and uh, Solomon executed um, Joab as he clung to the altar of God. Shammai, when David was fleeing from Absalom, Shammai followed David as he fled away in one of the lowest moments in David's life, threw rocks at him and cursed him. David came back, was exalted back as a king. Shammai apologized, but ultimately Shammai died and was executed for cursing David. Listen, did any of those people and their preferences stop David's purpose in exalting David? Did their preferences, well, we don't want David to be the king. We don't like the fact that David's a king. We don't want someone like this reigning over us. Did that matter? It didn't matter. In Luke 16, there is a frightening thing that Jesus says that I think is really easy to look over and be like, I don't know what that was. In Luke 16, it's Luke's telling of the parable of the talents. And there's something unique. In the beginning of the parable, the king who distributes talents, before he distributes the talents, he goes away to receive a kingdom. And his citizens, they send a delegation after him. They say, we don't want this man to reign over us. So the king comes back after receiving the kingdom, brings his servants who had the talents. He deals with them. And then afterwards, after he's done dealing with the talents, he says this, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Can a king do that? If Jesus is king, nobody who opposes him will succeed. We cannot escape facing him. We can have our preferences. We can say, well, we don't want Jesus to be the king. I don't like what Jesus taught. I don't like his teaching and his ministry. I don't like that he wants me to walk worthy of the calling. I don't want to invest that much. There's one Lord. If Jesus is the one Lord, what you prefer about him, it doesn't matter. Because a king can do whatever he wants. Jesus told all sorts of parables where a king does things and it's like, well, I mean, the king has the authority to do it. And it's so easy, like people were deceived by the mercy of David, thinking that they were the ones who got to have a say in the matter. It may sound harsh, but we don't have a say in the matter. And the will we have to discover Jesus as king is a gracious act on God's part to win the will to submit Because God is seeking the will to submit. If we don't accept Jesus as Lord, we will not succeed in the end. Jesus is the one we obey. 
In Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6, Jesus himself said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Jesus is the one we obey, but he's also our one judge. Turn back to Romans chapter 14 really quickly. In Romans chapter 14, the conversation is about liberty and how easy it can be to mistake our preference for commandment. And the key thing is we have to understand that if there's one Lord and one judge, I'm simply a servant to the judgments of God. This passage, again, like so many passages in Scripture and even these ones, all of this can be abused. Sometimes, as a side note, someone will look at Romans chapter 14 and they'll try to make the point that doctrine is in the same league as the liberties being discussed here. And, and that's just, it's such a misunderstanding of the context. He's talking about foods, right, in the initial part of the chapter, how a Jew in their conscience could be used to the fact that, you know, certain foods should only be eaten and other foods are going to be unclean. A Gentile is just, I mean, a Gentile is not going to have that conviction, right? A Gentile probably loves bacon and pork, and a Jew is going to think that's unclean and unholy, right? So the point is they have to learn to recognize the liberty. If a Jew wants to not eat certain foods, fine. You know, Jesus gives the permission for that liberty. If a Gentile wants to eat all sorts of, of stuff, well, fine. God gives them that liberty. So with that, like, kind of big qualifier, um, look at Romans chapter 14, verse 8 through 12. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So again, there's a caution, a reverential caution with Jesus being the one Lord. The caution even with, with these ones is we have to seek very humbly to allow God to define himself. And whatever he says, he is God and we are not. We are simply parts of the body. We let him define himself. But at the same time as well, there's a reverential caution is I also don't want to bind what God has not bound. I don't want to give commandments that God has not given. And I want to give as much freedom as possible. I think this is also related to why we give thanks before we eat. You know, I, I was talking to Eve about this. It's, it's easy to um, think that the scriptural prayer is, God, please bless this food for the nourishment of our bodies. When it's like sometimes we eat food that's really not nourishing, so it's like, what are you praying for? It's like, it's fine to pray that, you know, but ultimately we're just giving God thanks for the food. or saying, God, thank you for allowing me to eat. But I think a part of that thankfulness is, God, thank you for giving me the permission to eat. Thank you for giving me the liberty to eat. You know what God showed in the Old Testament is if he wants to be restrictive with food, he can do it. If he wants to say, hey, don't eat pork. Oh, okay. I mean, you're Lord. Don't eat pork. Don't eat pork. And so even the liberty that we have to eat all foods or to eat at any time that we want. And God in the word doesn't say only eat this amount of food when you eat any, any more and you're a disgusting pig. We were given tons of liberty, right? So as Lord, Jesus does give liberty. And the more we understand that he's Lord and not our servant by right, we recognize he is an incredible Lord. We are given astonishing freedom, freedom that is so easy to take for granted, freedom that is so easy to abuse, and he does it gladly. So there, there are just so many beautiful components to who he is as Lord One final one, going back to how the Lord is reflected by David. David's life was characterized by deliverance. If you want one theme of the Psalms, the whole book of Psalms, all 150 Psalms, 
The theme is that God always delivers. God is the deliverer. With all of these things said about the one Lord, who Jesus is as Lord, he's not just our judge, he's not just the one we obey, he's our deliverer. He's the guarantee that he cares compassionately about what hurts our hearts. That even when we don't know how to escape our suffering or escape circumstances, we know for a certainty that Jesus will deliver us, if not in this life, in the one to come. With Jesus, there's the guarantee of deliverance. Finally, one baptism and one God. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 11. Um, Before we read this, I want to go through this list here. So I think it's important to recognize that not only do people define baptism differently um, in the world and in religious bodies, you know, there's lots of baptisms in the Bible. So the question is, well, which one is the one, right? You've got Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. You have John's baptism, John the Baptist. You've got John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus' disciples were baptizing. Mark chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus is talking about the baptism of his suffering. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 6, where we are, is baptism into Jesus. So I just want to put into your minds the question. The overall theme of Ephesians 4 is unity, right? Unity with God. Which one of these baptisms do you think fits the context of being the one baptism that unifies us together with God? Really, the answer should be, Really simple, it's Romans chapter 6 talking about the baptism that joins us with Jesus. We'll read in a moment. Um, But before we read the passage, one of the most common things that I encounter when I'm studying with people um, in the world, people tend to define baptism today in a way that actually doesn't fit any single one of these things. Here is generally what people say about baptism. Baptism is a necessary thing. Somebody should get baptized. But baptism is just a sign of your commitment. So when you're baptized, you know, you were saved already. But because you were saved, well, you want to show people that you're committed. So you should be baptized after you're saved to show that you have died with Christ and that he's risen you from the dead. That is not a single one of these. And I will take people to this passage and I'll just ask them about the text and what it's saying and Does that being joined with Jesus happen before or after baptism? And it is concerning how often somebody refuses to say what the text even says about baptism because ultimately they're unwilling to accept what it implies, right? So let's read the passage, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, or 3 through 11, I'm sorry. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. I just want to talk about some of the things about this one baptism again, very briefly. 
Remember, first of all, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, baptism joins us with the body of Christ. So in Acts chapter 2, it'll mention that the Lord was adding to the church those who were being saved. So we actually can't join ourselves into the body of Christ. It's God who adds us himself in our salvation. So baptism is what joins us to the body of Christ, but baptism is the point when we're unified with God and his people. You know, baptism in scripture keeps some pretty incredible company. I mean, just think about all the things that this is saying happened at someone's baptism when they were baptized in faith that God would work at that point to fulfill his promises. Baptism is the point where we're unified with God and unified with his people. It's almost like baptism is the point where all of these ones that we're studying all come together and we're unified with God with all of these things being true at that point. So, does it matter when individuals or groups do not teach God's one baptism? Because I would argue that if baptism is not being taught the way it is clearly in scriptures, as one of the most simple and straightforward concepts, everything kind of collapses from there. That if, if baptism is not being taught or practiced, then what that means by implication is Jesus is really not being seen as Lord. It breaks the faith that is in Romans 4. It's, it's not a trust in what God has promised or how he said he fulfills his promises. It, it changes and undermines the one hope that we have to be glorified with Christ through our death and resurrecting with him. You know, so there's all these things that begin to break down. And I think it's important to be very plain with how serious this is. Because if a church group or an individual is not teaching baptism, then what they're doing is they're teaching people a misunderstanding of salvation and of God. Um, there's a megachurch in the area um, called Compassion Christian Church. And I've talked to a lot of people who attend there. And I've talked to some of the leadership who teach there. And they have kind of a, a strange way of teaching salvation. They'll actually, out of one side of their mouth, they'll teach that if somebody believes baptism is necessary for salvation, the forgiveness of sins, they'll allow for that. But if somebody doesn't believe that and they just want to say a prayer, they'll allow for that too. Scripture doesn't give that liberty. And that kind of cowardly um, lack of, of foundation in faith, that doesn't exempt a church or teachers from being false teachers who are deceiving people. When God says, this is how you're saved, that's it. And to contradict God's word and the one Lord so presumptuously is not a slight matter. And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's scripturally well to look on groups that aren't even teaching the most fundamental truths of salvation and to look at them well. When to teach that wrong shows such lack of commitment of faith to the fundamental teachings of God's word. If we can't get salvation correct, then what else are we missing, right? And again, it's not that we're teaching baptism as just a work, but we have to put it in the place that God has put it in and accept nothing less. With this, ultimately the reason why baptism is so important and all of these other things is because everything is ultimately about living toward and with the Father. You see that in verse uh, 11 in Romans chapter 6. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Everything is ultimately about being with the Father. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
um, God being the father is expounded on. It mentions that he's the father of all. So whether or not people choose to be reconciled with him, even though we're estranged from him by our sin, ultimately God is the creator of all life. He has right over all life. Everything is meant to lead us back to God. He has authority over everything. He works through everything and in everything. I think the idea is that sin blinds us. It blinds me so desperately that I cannot see how God is fitting with the description in Ephesians 4. That God has authority over everything and everything is meant to teach me about God. Everything is meant to put me in awe of God. Everything is meant to teach me about the love of God. And I think this is what you see at the end of the book of Job. God responds to some of Job's accusations and obviously those of his friends as a consequence. And it's interesting, you expect God in the book of Job to give some grand, powerful speech. And his presence is powerful as he appears in a whirlwind. But he talks about like birds and animals and nature. Because Job had failed to recognize how even though his circumstances looked awful, and it looked like God was being unjust, what God brings out to Job is nature teaches you that God is still being faithful. That you can suffer, but if God is over all, through all, and in all, then the fact that the world continues on as it does, the fact that animals and natural life still is being sustained, God has not broken the faithfulness of his character. God is even able to use our trials and distresses for his glory. Romans chapter 8 will say that God works all things out for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Everything. Nothing is outside of the realm of what God can use. Nothing is outside of the realm of what God can use for his purpose. Nobody recognized that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the one way God was working to fulfill his greatest promise a promise everybody was looking for, a promise that the Jewish people were relying on. Nobody understood that it was the cross that God would work through. God is able to work in all things. And then finally, this is the final point of the lesson. If we don't have the Father, we actually don't have anything. But if we do have him, we have everything. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse um, 15 through 17. Romans 8, 15 through 17. It says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. The Father gives purpose to everything. Everything is meant to lead us into a deeper love of God. Everything is meant to deepen our understanding of God's love. And God withholds nothing from his children. If we belong to God, as Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The more clearly and more intimately we know the Father, the more we understand that as a father protects his children and gives what is good to them, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We'll end the lesson there. If you're here this morning and you have not, by faith, chosen to respond to the gospel by being baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, 
If you've been baptized in your past, but it was not a baptism that was for the remission of your sins, if it was just uh, something that a church you were attending was doing, if it was just a work to show commitment, those things do not save because God's power is not in it at all. God has chosen to fulfill his promises by faith. It's not the water that saves, but it is God's promise working through faith in the person responding. If you want to respond to the gospel this morning and die with Jesus to be forever united with him, if there's anything we can do for you otherwise uh, that fits with the will of God, come forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.